How many of you are lawn people? You like your lawn to be nice and green and lush, and you care about your lawn looking better than your neighbor's? I see a few hands. Yeah, a few of us. Um, my backyard is very visible from places I usually occupy in my home, so I care about my backyard lawn. I want that to look great. My front lawn I don't typically care about, uh, but this year I noticed that it was looking overly weedy and really thin, and I'm like, yeah, maybe I should start paying more attention to my front lawn. So we called up one of those lawn service companies and, and ask them to come and fertilize and deal with the weeds and do all these things. And so they've been coming to my house and I paid all this money for them to do that. And they do something that's incredibly nice. Each time they come, they send me an email. They send me an email to let me know that they've come, but they also send me the email to let me know the things that I have to do to make my lawn look better or make my lawn look like the picture that they had in their advertisement. Um, but my desire to see my front lawn look better than my, than it has in past years hasn't really changed. So while my lawn doesn't have any weeds on it anymore, it's still quite thin and it's not looking all that great and it needs a lot of effort and grass seed and all these things. And this year I just, maybe I'm just too lazy. I'm not sure quite what it is. But you could say that my approach to lawn care is all wrong. If I wanted my lawn to look like the pictures and the advertisement, if I wanted it to look better than my neighbors, not only should I have this company come and help me out, but I need to listen to and obey their instructions. There's things that I need to do. There's some ownership that I have to take, some responsibility that I have to recognize in order for me to see my front lawn transformed. But for some reason, I'm just not getting around to it. But I think about this reality, and as it plays out in my front lawn, it's not a huge deal. I see these types of things popping up all over my life. Whether it's taking care of my home, or perhaps taking care of my vehicle, making sure that regular maintenance is happening, it's all too easy to just let those things that we need to do to make these things flourish just pass by. And over time, we could be frustrated that we're not experiencing our homes or our vehicles in the way that we want to. They aren't working properly. But how much more in our relationships or our personal health? There's things that we know we need to do to, to see things flourish and thrive. But we are, maybe just aren't giving the effort that we are supposed to. Our approach is all wrong. Well, how much more even in our relationship to God? You know, when we read scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we read the narrative of our creator God pursuing us, coming after us, longing to be with us, telling his creation that he knows how we're supposed to get the most and the best out of life without blowing it. But throughout human history, and even when I look at my own short life, there's a story of me kind of rejecting God's ways. Of me not living the way that God has called me to live, but I'm somehow frustrated that I'm not experiencing the abundant life that God has called me to. I wonder if my approach is a little bit wrong. Well, our text this morning tells us of someone who approached God all wrong. And he received much more than just a frustrating outcome. I want to unpack this story from 2 Samuel chapter 6 from the perspective of how we should approach God and invite us to consider our own heart postures as we seek to be the people that God has created us to be. 
Well, to reorient us in 2 Samuel 6, a lot has happened in the last several chapters, hasn't it? We've watched a civil war unfold in Israel, and we've watched David move from reigning just over the people of Judah to now being established as king over the 12 tribes of Israel, reigning from Jerusalem. Commentators uh, mention this transition within the biblical text where we've, we've shifted from Mount Sinai to Jerusalem in terms of a critical location, and we've shifted from Moses to David in terms of a key or critical figure. This is a massive pivot that we have happening in the Old Testament uh, historical narratives. And as David has sought to establish his reign and rule over the people of Israel, he's recognized that it's not enough for David himself to take his throne in Jerusalem, but that God needs to also be there as well and needs to be seen by the people of Israel. So David seeks to bring the Ark of the Covenant um, to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant, as Anna so well explained in the kids' spotlight, it was this box that God had the people of Israel construct. It was one of the furnishings of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was kind of this movable temple that the people of Israel had when they wandered through the wilderness and the desert. But this little box, this Ark of the Covenant, was so much more than just a little box. It was plated in gold. And it was understood by the people of Israel to be where God's presence manifested itself. Now, this is not to say that God was limited to this box or contained in this box. Rather, that it was, this box was the means by which God allowed his presence to be experienced among Israel. So it was very significant. In Exodus, we read about God speaking to Moses from between the cherubim. I think we have a picture of what the ark might have looked like. Uh, We don't have the ark, obviously, but um, so we have these two angel-like figures on the top. We call those cherubim. And in the Old Testament, we read not only did Moses hear God speak from between the cherubim, but the writers of the Psalms, as well as some of the prophets, refer to God as the one who is enthroned between the cherubim. So something we love about David is that he is a man after God's own heart. And we see in this text that not only did David move himself to Jerusalem and establish his rule and reign from Jerusalem, but he brought the very presence of God represented in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem as well. It was a way to keep God before all the people of Israel. It was a way to remind the people of Israel that although we have a physical king, a man seated on a physical throne, that we as the people of Israel still answer to God. We still have a king of kings. So as David's throne was established, God's throne needed to be established as well. And we have uh, parallel stories in scripture here. There's um, in First Chronicles chapters 13, 14, and 15, we have the same telling of this story of the ark coming to Jerusalem. And something that David says that is so beautiful to me is he laments that we did not seek the Ark of the Covenant in the time of, the Saul, of, in the time of Saul. We did not seek it in the time of Saul. So David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to, to Israel into Jerusalem, I believe, is him saying that we need to seek God. Let us draw near to God. Let us not forget God, who he is and what he has done. Let us not forget who we ultimately answer to. David's desire to do this should be relatable for us. We look at it as something that is exemplary. 
Now in the New Testament, we understand that the Holy Spirit is not limited to the tabernacle or to a temple. We understand that the Holy Spirit is not contained in some sort of box or something, but that after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. That you and I, those of us who have faith in Jesus, have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so while we don't necessarily say that we need to go and search out God's Spirit, trying to find it in some sort of physical sense, I think that the example of David to us to be a people who seek God's presence is incredibly important. There are intentional steps that you and I need to take in our life with Jesus to seek out the presence of God. In the way that David said, I'm bringing the tabernacle to Jerusalem to keep the Lord before us, you and I, as much as we have the Spirit inside of us, need to remember We need to make intentional steps. We need to do intentional things to remind ourselves that the Lord is with us. That the Lord is in us. Even as Terry's testimony this morning of taking time to pray on the way to church was a way in which she reminded herself of the presence of God with her and among her. And that is a beautiful reality. So we attend worship services. We go on personal retreats. We take personal times of devotion in prayer and studying the scriptures all as ways to keep the presence of God before us. As David sought to bring the presence of God to Jerusalem in this tangible way, so too we should seek to establish God's presence more intentionally in our own lives. And what this narrative goes on to show us, however, is that the way we approach God matters. The way we go about this matters. In in seeking to bring the presence of the Lord to Jerusalem, David learns a profound lesson about God. A very profound lesson about God. So our story goes with David gathering a group of people, going uh, to where the ark is and collecting it. We read that Uzzah and Ehu lead the procession of, of taking the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. But at some point during this procession, the ox that's pulling the cart stumbles. The ark slips on the cart. Uzzah's filled with panic as he thinks that the ark is going to fall onto the ground. And so he reaches out to stabilize the ark. I don't think Uzzah expected that that would be the moment of his death. Uzzah dies in that moment for reaching out and touching the ark of the covenant. Uzzah dies. David is angry. What is going on here? While their intentions were good, their approach to God was all wrong. Uzzah and Ehu had been caring for the ark for quite a while, but they were not the ones who were supposed to be carrying the ark to Jerusalem. They had ignored God's instructions about how the ark was to be cared for. In addition to this, we read in Numbers chapter 4 verse 15 that the ark was not meant to be touched. God says to the people that you can move the ark, but then the sons of Koath specifically are the ones to carry it. The sons of Koath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. So while we might be shocked at what's happening in this narrative, we have to realize quickly that God is doing exactly what he said he would do. 
And God has established himself as one who is holy among the people of Israel. One who is deserving of all respect and honor. And it seems that Uzzah cared little for that respect or that honor. It is strangely easy for us to forget who God is. That he is the creator of the universe. That he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. It is easy for us to think little of the holiness of God. That who he is is far beyond what we could even comprehend. It's easy for us to forget that when Isaiah came before the Lord, he, he thought himself as one who was dead. As he heard the cherubim praising God, yelling, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah confronted within himself of his insufficiencies and his inadequacies. This passage is troubling, but it's surprisingly not unique in Scripture. A passage like this is one that we say, oh, you know, well, that's in the Old Testament. Stuff like this doesn't happen anymore. And we kind of want to sweep it under the Old Testament rug. Maybe you've done that before theologically. Like, I don't know, this doesn't make sense. It's just the Old Testament. But when we look at all of Scripture, we, we see this happens more often than maybe we'd like to admit. Earlier in the Samuel narratives, we read that the, 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 the Philistines were actually experiencing sickness because the Ark of the Covenant was in their presence. We get into the New Testament and we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira who came before the apostles and it says that they lied to the Holy Spirit. No respect for who God is in that moment. And what happens? They experience death. Both Ananias and Sapphira die because of their irreverence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it seems that Paul connects sickness and death to taking communion in an unworthy manner. Throughout scripture, what God reveals to us is that the way we approach God matters. Uzzah dies for his irreverence and his disobedience. Eugene Peterson, commenting on this, writes that Uzzah's death was years in the making. It was years in the making. Something about the familiarity of him caring for the ark day after day, he might have lost his wonder and respect and reverence for God. But Uzzah shows us what it can look like when we seek to control God. When we want to be the ones who dictate how we approach him. It's easy for us to have a desire, to have the desire for the fruit of a God-oriented life, but to have no desire to actually let God be a part of it. (laughs) It's like my grass at home. (laughs) I desire lush green grass, but I have no desire in doing the work that it actually takes to make that happen. When we read this narrative, we see that Uzzah decided what was best. He embraced the modern technology of the day, which was an ox pulling a cart, which was to the disregard of the word of God. Essentially, David limited God to a box. He kept God in a box, something he could contain, something that he could manage. And friends, you and I can so easily be like Uzzah, limiting God, controlling God, Appearing to desire him, but really having no regard for him. 
If seeking to live in God's presence is about pursuing him in a way that orients and turns our lives towards God and his ways, seeking to control God's presence hinders that orientation, keeping our worship self and other focused, or in biblical language, idolatrous. I think there's a scary reality for us that we can have an idea of God that isn't actually God. At the heart of the original sin of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil was was not so much this, it wasn't simply about them breaking the command that God had given them, but it was also about them desiring to be ones who determined what was right and what was wrong. They made a play to be God. They wanted to be the ones who dictated what it meant for them to be in relationship to God. They wanted to be the ones who determined what was right and what was wrong. In this, they made a play to control God. And friends, it's so easy for us to limit God to our own thoughts. Someone we can contain. Someone we can control. Someone that we think, well, if I just pray in this way or do this or that thing, then all the good things will happen to me. It's easy to limit God to simply a ticket to eternal salvation, but have no regard for him in our day-to-day life. Having a controlling, entitled, or expertise approach to God undermines so much of what walking with Jesus is actually about. It's easy to miss that Christian discipleship is characterized by the giving up of control. Matthew 16, Mark chapter 8, and Luke chapter 9 all record Jesus' words to his disciples where he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. At the heart of Christian discipleship is this surrender, this giving up all of our control to Jesus, and admitting to him that we do not know what is best. So how do you and I do this? Because when I look at Uzzah and I actually think about what might have been going on in his world, this desire to control, this, this desire to have it all figured out. I can relate to that. I want to control. I hate the thought of not being in control. I love the idea of having God all figured out and be able to present him to people in a clean and polished way. How do we avoid becoming victims of this? Well, this is a lesson that King David had to learn. I believe that David's response reveals to us a few ways in which we should approach God. It reveals to us a few ways that we can resist cultivating control or, or irreverence, but rather become God-oriented. Be it here in our church at TCC, be it in our homes, in our workplaces, or in our personal acts of devotion, the way that David responds to this event has much to teach us. And I think we can look at it through three different words. The first is humility. Humility. After this event with Uzzah, we're told that David's response were these words, how could the ark of the Lord come to me? How could the ark of the Lord come to me? David's anger works in his heart in such a way that he comes to see God rightly. He comes to understand who this God is that he's dealing with. 
he moves from frustration to humility. The result of this is that David sets aside his plan to bring God to Jerusalem. The ark remains with Obed-Edom, who is most likely the closest Levitical priest. And after three months of waiting, having set aside his entitlement, having dealt with his anger, David then returns to the task, but in a very different way. David seeks out God's way. He seeks out God's way in his approach to, to how he was to bring God uh, to Jerusalem. He seeks out God and then he chooses to be obedient to God. Now we don't see this so much in 2 Samuel chapter 6, but we see it a lot in 1 Chronicles. And in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 15 verse 12 to 13, uh, we read these words. This is David speaking to the Levitical priests. He says, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to his rule. Now this is a profound verse. What is this, what is this verse about? This is David saying to the priests, hey guys, I totally screwed up. I totally screwed up. I tried to do this thing my way. But in a heart of humility, David, either he goes and he reads the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, or he, he finds someone who's an expert in the Torah. I don't know what his approach was. But David took time to learn about how he was supposed to move the Ark of the Covenant. He took time to figure out how God wanted to be honored and respected in this transition. He sought to understand God on God's terms. He sought to understand how God was to be honored from God. I know many of us in this room are married. and This is a lesson we have to learn in our marriage very quickly. Is how our spouse receives love or affection. Uh, too often in marriage situations you can have one spouse who is buying the other all sorts of gifts. And, and doing all these things to say, hey, you know, I, I love you, I bought you flowers. I love you, I bought you this or that. Where the other spouse just feels like their husband is disconnected and distant and isn't loving. And then she'll confront him on this and it says, what do you mean? I've been buying you all these gifts. And she might respond and say, I don't like gifts. I don't like all this stuff. I just want you. If you were counseling this couple, you would identify to them that their love languages, the understanding of how the other receives love is all wrong. And it's important in our relationships for us to learn how the other person receives love. So too, in our relationship to God, it's important for us to go to God's word to understand how we are to show God our affection and our adoration. How does God want to be honored? How does God want to be loved? How are we supposed to live our lives according to his purposes? Well, it's all laid out for us in God's word. So the result of David's study was that the Levites were, consecra were consecrated. They went through ritual purity. Massive preparations were undergone. If you want to look at Second Chronicles, it, it, it details all the different people who were involved in bringing the ark um, into Jerusalem. And what we end up reading in First Chronicles is that God honors and helps the procession. That God sees what they're doing in trying to bring the ark and he honors it. And this is a result of David's humility. 
Friends, our posture before the Lord should begin with David's question. Who am I? Who am I that the presence of God would actually come to me? It is a question of humility. It is a question that recognizes the greatness and the majesty of God. It is a question that implies that my control or your control over any situation is actually insufficient. It's a question that recognizes that the only possibility of being in God's presence is God's grace. Our culture has it so backwards, doesn't it? Rather than saying, who am I that God would come to me? We live in a culture where the culture is saying, God, why should I choose you? Why should I give you my attention or my devotion or my love or my adoration? In our consumerist culture, people are trained to to look so critically at God and ask God the question, well, who are you that you are worthy of me? Friends, this is completely opposed to what Scripture has to teach us. Our culture has it so backwards. And I believe that when we honestly ask this question, who am I that the presence of God would come to me, that God has so many great answers to give to us. And I want to be clear that this is not a text about being cleaned up before God. 2 Samuel 6 is not about Uzzah needing to be more righteous or better or, or have himself all primmed and proper before God is going to honor him. Rather, it is one about being mindful about how we come to God. It is one about being mindful of God's holiness, allowing God's holiness to move us, to change us, to challenge us. Because the story of Scripture is one of a God who wants to be near. If Uzzah was simply struck down for his disobedience, I don't think any of us would be alive today. (laughs) We wouldn't make it. But the story of Scripture is of a God who wants to be with his people. And over and over and over again makes a way for that to be possible. And it is all wrapped up in grace. Whether it was the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and the the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, that was all about grace. It's so easy to think that that was all about works, but that was all about grace. To God sending his one and only son to us in the person of Jesus. This proclamation of God to his creation that I want to be with you. I want to be with you, and this is the way. So it begins with humility. The second piece is that of surrender. Surrender. We need to give God ourselves. We need to give God ourselves. And sometimes we need to give God our resources. In our narrative, we see the people of Israel giving up their resources to God through sacrifice. We read that they took six steps And after six steps, they stopped and they sacrificed an animal. The seventh step was this place of sacrifice. Now there's scholarly debate around whether or not every six steps along the journey they made the sacrifice. Um, Most scholars would say that that's not what happened, but rather they started off the journey uh, with the six steps and a pause for sacrifice. The six steps mirroring, mirroring the creation narrative of God working six days and on the seventh resting. But this journey was 10 miles, which would be us getting up from this room and walking to Roger's place downtown. Uh, So quite a distance. But sacrifice was the way that it was, it began. 
Uh, one commentator uh, had these great words, I think that helps us understand the sacrifice a bit better. They write that although God cannot be managed, God's holiness can be acknowledged through appropriate actions. In this case, through acts of sacrifice, which create the conditions under which the ark may be moved. What is evident, though, is that the ancient practice of sacrifice, the taking of life, makes ready the environment for moving the divine presence. Once David and his companions recognize the seriousness of what they are doing, which they acknowledge now by the sacrifice, it then becomes possible to move the ark. The sacrifice of animals was not the only type of sacrifice that we see in this text. But there was also a sacrifice of worship where all the people let out their songs of praise to God. Instruments were used to praise God. David danced with all of his strength and all of his might as a sacrifice unto God. If I were to give this dance a name, I would call it a fear of the Lord dance. It was a fear of the Lord dance. A dance of reverence. A dance that was David giving all of himself back to God. It was a dance which was an outward expression of David's heart. The praise and the adoration coming out through his body. David goes on to characterize this dance as undignified or contemptible, which you read in verse 22. Ultimately, it was David laying down his pride and his dignity. It was a dance that put David in his rightful place. As he danced before the people, it was as if he was saying to them, You can all crown me king, but I still answer to another king. And oh, how I need that posture in my heart today. Where I look at the world around me and I might say, You can give me power. You can give me popularity. You can give me influence. But I still answer to another king. David's actions were that of surrender. His example to us in this dance is one of total reverence and surrender to God. And friends, this is what we hope to offer to to you each week as you come to TCC to worship. An environment in which we can lay out our hearts before God. Honestly. Surrendering to God what's going on in our hearts. Sometimes that means we raise our hands. Sometimes that means that we dance. Although we're Baptists, so we tend to bob, right? (laughs) We do the Baptist bob. Sometimes it means we clap off beat. But when we gather together week to week, we join in this expression of worship, which is a reflection of surrender to God, recognizing Him for who He is. So David responds to Uzzah's death with humility, with surrender, but then also celebration. We read on in our text that Israel celebrates the coming of the Lord to Jerusalem. They were a celebrating people. They had a new capital. They had a new king. And now God was in their midst, established in this holy city. This was certainly a joyous celebration. The presence of God has now come to the capital of their nation. Can you imagine? I would love to see that. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The people of Israel sang, they ate, they blessed, and were blessed. They worshipped. 
Friends, as Christians, we rightfully celebrate. We should be known as a celebrating people. It's easy for us in prayer to bring to God our sadness or our frustration or our struggles. It's easy to bring God our sickness or our burdens that we carry for our loved ones. But we also need to bring God our joys, our greatest gladness. We need to welcome God into all those moments in our day where we're just happy and and looking around ourselves and feeling blessed. We invite him into all. When we live from a posture of humility and surrender, there is so much for us to celebrate in Jesus. We celebrate what Christ has done and what he is going to do in and through us. So how might your approach to God be marked with celebration? Do you choose to see him in the details? Do you choose to see him in the blessings? Friends, David's response to the encounter with God and the death of Uzzah was humility, surrender, and celebration. I believe we can sum these three attributes up with the word worship. The word worship. Worship is an expression of reverence to God on the basis of his worth. And by this definition, everything that we do can fall under the category of worship as we orient and dedicate our very lives to God, all of our choices. Do you realize that every time you choose, you worship? Every time you make a choice to something, you're saying yes to one thing and no to another thing. So if our choices are an expression of our worship, every time we choose, we say yes to worshiping God or no to worshiping God and yes to worshiping something else. While this text is not a comprehensive teaching on worship, the characteristics I believe that we see in David and his response to Uzzah sum up quite well the characteristics that should be present in all of our worship. When we allow our worship and our lives to be marked with humility, surrender, and celebration, we orient ourselves in such a way that we begin to experience that abundant life that Jesus has to bring for, has for us. In our larger context here at TCC, we rightfully enter into worship with these postures of humility, surrender, and celebration as we as a congregation orient ourselves before God and express our love and our devotion to him. Now this is not the end of our story this morning. We go on to read about David being rebuked by his wife, Michal. Friends, our worship is confusing to the world. David's worship was confusing to his wife. Now from a perspective, a narrative perspective of 1st and 2nd Samuel, there's a couple things to note that doesn't really tie into worship, but is important for us to remember. Michal's place in this narrative serves many purposes. Primarily, it's to further establish David's line as king by bringing to an end the possibility of Saul having any descendants. You'll note something interesting in this text that both in verse 16 and verse 20, the narrator does not call Michal the wife of David. Rather, she refers to her as the daughter of Saul. The narrative ending in this way, I believe, is the the narrator tipping his hand to the reality that all that David has just done 
in bringing the ark to Jerusalem is validated by God. God is with and is blessing David. Saul's line has come to an end. And that's just, that is a narrative aside. To bring us back to the realities of worship, David here is accused of flaunting himself before the women of Israel and of not acting as a king should act. He corrects Michal by, he corrects Michal with his insistence that his actions were not before the women of Israel, but were before the Lord. David is convinced that his displayed devotion to Yahweh, to the Lord, would result in honor. Friends, we have Michals in our churches today. People who criticize the worship of others. Who, like Uzzah, believe that they have this God thing figured out and feel that everyone else needs to get in line to their understanding of who God is and how God is to be worshipped. We also have Mikals in our culture abundantly. People who stress that a life lived in accordance to God's word and God's ways is simply foolish, outdated, oppressive, and even wicked. Whether we are interacting with Mikals in our church or whether we're interacting to Mikals in our culture, like David, we need to respond to continually seek to honor our Lord. Another lesson from this text is that it's not the approval of people that we seek, but the approval of God. And friends, David is indeed honored by God and by Israel. So worship is an act of humility, surrender, and celebration. When we talk about wanting to experience and live that life abundant that Jesus has for us, It begins with us orienting our lives in this posture of worship. Humbly coming before God. Surrendering all that we are to Him. And celebrating Him in every moment of our lives. These postures keep us in a rightful place before God. Intentionally keeping us in worship means that as we go through our lives, it helps us to experience that abundance. It helps us walk out our created purpose. Maybe you're here this morning or you're listening online and you're just checking out church or God. Maybe you haven't made a faith commitment. But I want to invite you to start with humility. To honestly examine who God is and, who, and what he has to offer us in the person of Jesus and the life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Join with David in his humility. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel frustrated with God. You feel frustrated with church and Christianity. Maybe you're like me and you look at your life and it seems like that spread out grass on your front lawn that needs some love and care and attention. I want to invite you this morning to that posture of humility. To that action of surrender. And I want to invite you to to search your life for areas you can celebrate. Maybe it's a season you don't feel like there's much to celebrate. But friends, even in the midst of pain, God is still good. My invitation to us this morning is to lay down our pride, to choose surrender, and to celebrate who God is and what he has done for us and will continue to do in and through us. We wanted to give... Our congregation, an opportunity this morning to respond in, a, in worship after the service. We, we opened with one song. 
Uh, so we want to sing a few more songs together. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I just want to say, I know that part of my title here at TCC is, is worship uh, pastor. That's, worship isn't something I feel like I have totally figured out in any way, shape, or form. But I just want to recognize that as we go into a time of worship, uh, we're using the word worship kind of synonymously with music. And the two are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and it's okay for you if you do not connect with God through music. I just want to say that that's totally okay. And if this morning you want to take time to just reflect on our text or open up your Bible and reflect on a passage of Scripture and just sit in your chair while the music is playing, I encourage you to do that. Sitting during worship is not an act of protest. Uh, We recognize that each of us connect to God in a way that is unique, in a way that God has made us. My encouragement to you is to be authentic before him this morning. For some of you, that will mean raising your hands or clapping. For others, it might be a dance or a Baptist bob. Um, Whatever that is, I encourage you to worship wholeheartedly in this time. To take this time in these songs to allow your heart to enter into that posture of humility. To allow the expression of your mouth, whether it's through the words that are written or through a silent prayer that you give to the Lord, to express that surrender to Him. And of course, to join in these songs and celebrate who God is and what he's done. Let me pray for us. Let's all stand together. Yes, Jesus, we praise you for who you are. And God, we confess that oftentimes our perspective of you might not be accurate to who you are. That we might think significantly smaller of you than we should. But Lord, as we sing these songs that declare your, of your greatness of your worth, of your power. Lord, let the truth of the words of these songs set in our hearts. And Lord, help us to live from that place of adoration and reverence to you as we live out a life that is humble, that is surrendered, and the one that recognizes your presence with us through acts of celebration. So we celebrate you now, Lord Jesus. Amen.